0: Okay. The s The O6 stops This is Motley Fool
1: Money Welcome to Motley Fool Money The podcast that, well, is not going to be the cause of the end of credit cards as we know them I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Amir Bamahati. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, buddy Doing well, good. how are you? Mate, we are, still, we are still zooming it up, we're still recording remotely because COVID, but uh, mate, I can see your, your happy smiling face on the other end of the screen, our, our viewers will have to imagine it, but uh, you normally say you could be better, I reckon today you're looking pretty good, you're looking pretty happy, things are good? Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always up for being better because, you know, that's, <laughs> like, like, you, you know. I like that. You,
2: yeah, because, you know, that's you have something to, if you're always the best, Yeah, yeah. then there's nothing better than the best. That's rationalism,
1: so, I like it, I think it makes a whole lot of yeah, sense.
2: Yeah, so, you know, you could be good. <laughs> but you can always be better.
1: Indeed. Still, you've, you've read, yeah, you've read good to great, haven't you? I have. That's a fantastic do you remember book. The, do you remember the Stockdale paradox? I actually forgot. So we're we going to start this with a tangent, mate, which wasn't my intention, but just I, I like you're you're a Stockdale optimist kind of guy. I I, I try and consider myself roughly the same. So Jim Stockdale was a, uh, I think, oh, it was a U.S. military veteran. I can't remember what branch of the armed services he served with. Um, he is a U.S. military vet. He was a vice presidential candidate at one point, believe it or not, though uh, they're not successful. Um, Stockdale was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam during the war, and he talked about his experience during the war, and he said, "The you know you." The, he jim collins who wrote good to great asked him about the the prisoners of war who didn't make it who died um largely you know in large cases just losing hope just kind of giving up and and collins asked he said what was the difference and and stockdale talked about the fact they were kind of they were optimistic as was he but they were unreasonably optimistic they had set deadlines for their release we'll be out by christmas we'll be out by easter we'll be out by thanksgiving and he said those times would pass and all that optimism all that positivity they had just fell, fell away because they'd set these unrealistic goals and timelines that once they met once they missed them they kind of sucked all the hope away Stockdale remained optimistic, but realistically optimistic. He he was brutally realistic about the situation, optimistic he'd be released, but not setting artificial timelines or artificial expectations that just ended up serving as, as ways of taking hope away. So I, I've always loved that story. I've always thought it was a particularly useful one. Now, of course, being a prisoner of war is far more important than investing or most other things in life. So I don't want to draw too direct an analogy or say it's all the same thing. But that very idea as you said, you know, things could all, I'm I'm good, but I could be better. the idea of kind of rational optimism or reasonable optimism I think is a a really important point. And I think it's pretty useful for investors too by the way because that sense of we think things will get better, but we're mindful that, you know, it'll be a rocky path, kind of is the investor's lot, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you know, you have to look out think that things can be better. You, you know, if you don't think things can be better then you have no reason to actually, you know, save those dollars that you've earned and invest it for the future that's right? a good I mean, point actually yeah I like yeah, it that way so as well y- you have to you have to believe that you know it's going to be worth more in the future and that you know you can actually enjoy it in the future and if you believe that you can't enjoy it well you probably have no business <laughs> to invest why bother, right? uh, yeah why bother right so
1: like okay there we go. A massive tangent to start, but hopefully a useful one. I've always, I've always really, that that's story's always resonated with me. I've always remembered it. So it's a nice one. Nice one to drag out. Mate, we got a big podcast. Despite my tangent, uh, we got so much happening. So many different bits and pieces uh, around this week. Nice to have news to talk about this week. And um, as we enter the. What's on my well getting halfway through January. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm getting old, I know, but I looked at the, the the clock today. I Thought, man, how is it that we're halfway through the first month of the year already? Um, that's the way these things go, mate. The older I get, the quicker the time seems to go. But let's 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 get on with it with a bit of macro to start with. We don't do a heap of macro, or, or maybe it's not as relevant for our investing as we've said before. But a few big things out this week, mate. Um, some questionable. I oh, questionable not the wrong word. Some good and some bad vaccine news, both globally and locally. Um, so that's that's. Something we'll talk about that in a second. Of course, we saw the capital riots in the US. We won't go into too much of that; it's largely political, but um, and not a lot of investing takeaways. We don't think, but certainly has has distracted people meaningfully over the last week. the The number I, I will start with though is May's two hundred and fifty thousand, and that was a number of job vacancies out. I think it was an ANZ job ad survey out earlier this week, higher than pre-pandemic levels. And I'm a broken record on this, mate, but I don't think I've seen a bad data point in the last three months. It seems like you know, things can always be better, as you say, and, and certainly we're not back, economically speaking, to pre-COVID levels, but um, another sense that in, employers are hiring and, again, plenty of people in, in zombie jobs and job keeper jobs and that kind of stuff, but a, but a reasonable sense that the employment market, at least, seems to be reasonably buoyant when it comes to employers looking to hire, looking to grow, a sign that economic activity is probably looking pretty good.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the... the seeing those number of jobs being advertised is, is definitely a positive like you know to me it it seems to you know this has been a strange sort of um, like a year right <laughs> you, know, you, you know the jobs yeah. are gone the jobs are yeah. back and um you know a lot of and 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 a lot of a lot of the hits have been at mm. sort of, sort of you know, sort of sectors where people were to some extent marginalized anyways. There are, I'm not saying that there, were, that there are sectors where people were, you know, were not marginalized, you know, like, I mean, the, in the good one that I can think of is like airlines, for example, right? I mean, if you were an airline pilot, you probably still don't have a job. Um, sure. So so there, are the, so there are those things, but I think mm-hmm. a, lot, mm-hmm. a lot, you know, sort of, you know, if you think of the service industry, those are the people um, that, um, you know, didn't have jobs or lost jobs, but I think there's some interesting dynamics in play as well, right? I mean, and this is, you know, so if you think about the service industry, and if you think about how the service industry is actually serving people, it serves people via you know people who are uh, you know local but it also serves people via people who are international students or you know um, yeah like young adults who come here for experience and work and you know to explore australia and things like that so it's a little bit of a give and take right you, know, you yep. take away uh, input from the system uh, that was possible because the input has not happened. And now there's all of a sudden a strong demand. Um, you know, of course, you can say that you know, input as well as missing in the sense that you, know, you don't have visitors coming in from overseas. So therefore demand should be lower. But you know, again, it, broadly in my mind, you know, while all the data points are good, the one thing I keep reminding myself is um, nothing about the data points today are normal.
1: Yeah right. it's not true. it's not normal yeah, because
2: yeah. Um, I mean it's normal if we assume that we're going to be an isolated <laughs> island uh, henceforth and forever but if yeah, not yeah, then nothing yeah. about the data points are normal because you know at some point people, <laughs> people will go and spend money overseas they'll yeah. travel overseas yeah. because they want to go to Machu, Machu Picchu or whatever else right yeah. um, or or see the Egyptian pyramid as two mm-hmm. examples um, at the same time you would expect you know other people you know who want to come here and you know and maybe go to the Barrier Reef or you know go to Uluru or something like that, so we don't have that. Uh, at, the, at the same time, uh, I wouldn't expect you know the huge amount of like you know people buying like what I call the sofa craze or the furniture craze, right? <laughs> uh, like I mean, yeah. I. I, uh, you know, I would be surprised if sofa sales were up 20% next yeah. year. Like, yeah, I mean, that would, right. in fact, in fact, it almost seems like we've bought 10 years worth of sofas and furnitures, right? <laughs> so, so there's that. So, there's, yeah. so, so uh, you know, a lot of the data points that we have got right now, each, sh- I find it really hard to reconcile that between short-term and long-term. Uh, that's, yeah. But but I mean, you know, as long as people have jobs, I think that's good because they, you know, you've got jobs, you've got, you know, you, you have an earning, therefore you have a living. And if you have a living, then you can live your life and maybe even invest. Uh, so I think that's that's the good news. But I would- but Let me, let me throw you in
1: while, while you're going, actually, because yeah. the other one I was going to raise in a second was, and it's relevant because we're kind of going in that place now, but the household savings ratio, the proportion of our income we're saving as a country, was, I think we might have talked about this once before last year, was it 20% give or take, still at 18.9% on the last ABS stats. Saving $1.05, like frankly, as investors, we're kind of, you know, we, that's something you should probably aim for as an investor. But as a country, pre-crisis, we were sitting at low single digits. In boom times, 2014, 2015, we were negative saving. In other words, we we're spending $203 for every $100 we earned. Um That's either, as you say, a symptom or a or a a marker of a messed up economy, and or because it could be both, a sense that maybe there is some degree of some sort of coiled spring. Right? Yeah, we're not going to buy more sofas, but we're putting away plenty of money in the the national back pocket that, in theory, hopefully at some point, does get spent and could well, if not turbocharge, potentially just increase the. Amount of money going through the economy. Yeah, like I, I think that
2: that is possible. Um, the, I mean, I, I think it is possible. That, but again, uh, the fundamentally, I think, you know, if people are saving, say, one dollar out of five, right? So fundamentally, it could mean that you know, and uh, and I'm, I know people, and again, this is also, who have like these buckets, right? So they have this bucket for called travel bucket and right. you know maybe the travel bucket is like say 70% international and local travel <laughs> yeah. but you can't travel international so that yeah. bucket you're saving but
0: yeah, like, right. as I said
2: if, if like and people have bucket lists right? so I have my own bucket list and if my bucket list includes Machu Picchu and I want to go to Machu Picchu well I'm <laughs> going to save that money for going for Machu Picchu and not buy a sofa for it oh, right? right or maybe I bought a sofa I'm not going to buy another sofa so I don't I'm not yeah. you know I'm not 100% sold the other way to think about I think broadly if your economy fundamentally hasn't changed, if there is no mm-hmm. fundamental new products or services that you can buy, mm-hmm. I think it is unreasonable, in my opinion, to expect some sort of turbocharging happening because people just have extra money in their pockets. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's only so much coffee you can have and oh, only so much uh, butter chicken you can have, right? After which you're going to basically say, well, you know, I'm I'm over butter chicken at this point, right? Uh, or, and there's, you know, you can, you know, maybe you can buy the fancy car only once, but how many... <laughs> so, so I think there's a limit. Uh, so unless yeah, there's something yeah. new to spend on, yeah. it, to me, a higher savings rate is a reflection of inability to spend on stuff that people Lucky. actually yeah. want to spend, um, right? So uh, I, I think that is what it reflects. So I don't think... It reflects turbocharging opportunity. I think what it reflects in my mind is at least people have jobs and people are saving, uh, you know, with anticipation of you know, you know, in in future being able to spend. So. That's that, and you know, maybe my side comment here is that you know, if you've got that much amount of money sitting somewhere, maybe put, you know, put some into investing and invest in your future.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was probably, my thought. No, uh, exactly. uh,
2: probably a better outcome compounded uh, over over time. So, so uh, I don't know, you know, I know you have probably a different opinion on this, but you know, that's how I think about this.
1: Oh, no, not not dramatically. I well, I certainly have the same opinion of people putting spare money into uh, let let's let's say the, the sofa's not going to compound the same way shares might. So I'm I'm with you on that one. I look, I think I think I think you're right. I, I don't. I think there, there's probably a distribution of of reality, um, and so there are some people for whom, as you say, that the travel bucket is full and overflowing. There's other people who are saving because they simply kind of are, are mindful of the uncertainty that we're having as an economy, and this is a very common or re- relatively common. Um, Feature of recessions, right? People who can do because they think, well, hang on, what if my job's next? And so there is some sense of incremental saving with, that they, they could otherwise spend or would otherwise spend because at the end of the day, unless you're investing it, you might as well be spending it because no point sitting in cash. As we said before, cash is earning nothing. So you're either doing it because you're waiting for something to spend or you're worried that you might have to have it up your sleeve in case something else goes wrong. Um, I think, you know, like everything, it's probably a bit of column A, a bit of column B. I, I would expect there to be meaningful... Um, that, that that savings rate will fall o- over the next three years and some of it will be spent on international travel some will be spent on new sofas some will be spent on other stuff in the economy and people are simply saying hey hopefully as you say maybe hopefully our listeners are investing it (laughs) maybe we're a different group uh so i I think you're absolutely right but i do think there is a sense of a bit more of a distribution of of where that money will likely go and i do think it's 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 reduction over time will be a net stimulating stimulating impact by definition because if your household saving goes from 20 percent to 10 percent over time that's you know a dollar 10 going out for every hundred dollars coming in while you still got a positive savings uh, balance so I, i think i think it's probably a bit of both mate. quite honestly Hey, um, let's let's move on though, because uh, uh, you know we we talked about savings, and I think this is not a bad segue for me, mate. I'm only bad at segues, but uh, I've I've managed to find one, and then I've undone it by talking about it. Uh, let, let's talk about a bank savings, not not us uh, saving money in the bank, but the banks themselves having growing war chests. There's some news out today, or speculation. This might might be better out today, and I should say we're recording this on Thursday, the fourth of Jan. Uh, from uh, from some analysts uh, who are saying that. The APRA rules, which limited how much uh, money the banks could pay in dividends over the past year, have effectively allowed them to build up war chests that in theory would have been used to offset bad debts if they'd happened. But it seems thus far that the banks have escaped almost any bad news, but certainly most of the bad news, loan deferrals are down, loan defaults are down. It seems like, unless we have another shock, um, most mortgage holders will be able to repay on time in full. And so the banks find themselves with a kind of a first-class problem of plenty of cash around that they're looking for something to do with it. And and the, those analysts are speculating buybacks or increased dividends might yet be the result. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering probably out loud a little bit, mate. I'm not a big bank investor, nor are you, and I'm not suggesting for a second any of our investors go and jump at them. But I do wonder whether some of the PEs that we're seeing might just be they're not too high so they're not too low they're certainly very high but they might well be resized or right sized if the banks are able to pay what is being speculated as I said up to 16 billion dollars worth of buybacks and extra dividends to be paid out that actually might make some of those bank share prices look less out of control than perhaps they they look otherwise
2: yeah like I mean I really don't pay attention to any bank news, <laughs> so the, the fact that they're looking to pay back some dividend was, was actually, you know, when, when you said, okay, I said, oh, okay, maybe. Like, honestly, I really don't care. Like, I mean, right. you know, they exist or don't exist, they pay dividend or don't pay dividend, like mean, it doesn't really matter to me. It does not matter. we have taken a view before uh, that
1: they're expensive, right? They're not worth investing in for X, Y, Z uh, reasons. So that is based to well, some on valuation and growth.
2: Yeah, like, but it's, you know, to me, bank investing is the silly way to invest. Like, it's really, <laughs> really the tough investing. Like, you've got to get the valuation right. You've got to get all the speculation right. Uh, you know, you've got to make sure that, you know, uh, loans don't go don't go bad. You've got to have, like, a serious understanding of not just the local economy, but, you know, a couple of different sectors. You know, it's largely residential, right? These these are not even commercial banks in the real world scheme of things like I mean I, th- I think there's, in my, my view the big banks and other banks are necessary they're a very necessary component but mm. I think they're overthought you yeah. know from an investing yeah. point of view like I mean I don't know, like, I mean, you know, you could have, you know, like to say, like, you know, maybe you should have invested in Apple and Apple was up 70% last year, right? Uh, do you really care for that dividend that you get for 5% when the shares might have been down? So I don't know. I, it's, that's my take on or large in the banks. I think it makes sense for those people who are looking for, uh, perhaps makes sense for those people who are looking for some sort of, you know, steady bond yield-like returns. Uh, you know, thirty-five percent or so. Uh, maybe that context just makes sense. You, you know, going back, here's the thing, right? To answer the question of buybacks, well, didn't didn't some of these banks not too long ago raise capital via hybrids or via you know <laughs> the, these are the same people. Yeah. Who would raise capital on one hand, and then pay (laughs) dividends the other hand? Like how ludicrous, you know, ludicrous is that? Like I mean, that is just ludicrous. So I don't know. Like if I, (laughs) I wouldn't be giving these guys the blank check to, you know, um, you know, do buybacks and stuff like that. And. You know, these are also people <laughs> that, you know, basically pay out everything that they've got uh, and sometimes pay out more than they've got, right? They pay out ratios. <laughs> are more about than sort
1: of savings ratios, exactly, yeah.
2: Yeah, they're like, you know, neg- their savings ratio is negative. So I have mixed feelings. The, the valuations might be right. The valuations might be wrong. This isn't, you know, personally, I just don't, I try not to spend more than five minutes in a week thinking about banks. And like those five minutes are exactly here. <laughs>
1: There you go. And we've taken them all up in this podcast. So uh, there'll be no more bank talk for you this week. Mate, um, look, I think, you know, so I'm going to just say for our listeners, you've made a good point, well, a couple of good points in terms of are they investable at a total return level? Probably not. Are they investable for people who want income? Probably, depending on alternatives. Although I think what's, you know, what's really missing, mate, is I, I'm I'm loath to say a structure because that normally means fees. You know, Macquarie and others are great at saying, "Hey, here's an opportunity. How can we make some money from it?" Um, we have a service called Everlasting Income. We make money from from doing something similar, quite frankly. Although we hopefully keep our subscription fees lower. Um, you know, we have a service that 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 we use to help people turn a portfolio into a into a cash flow. And I think that's probably what's maybe missing for many investors who are in a situation of either, you know, feeling like they should or they have or they've got an SMSF and they're saying, Well, how do I get income from this? It is easy and and simple and not as volatile. All those things. I can I can absolutely understand why people say, you know what? And if I hold a lot of banks in Telstra, I'm going to hold them all and when they pay me a check, I'll use that to pay the bills, and that's just simple. You know, you, you, could, you could, as you say, buy Apple, sell a little bit of it and, and fund some income, but you got to sell, you got a capital gains. You got, you know, what do I sell? The price is volatile, can I afford to sell them? If the price is down, do I want to sell them? Um, I, I get why people are like, you know what? I just want to really, it's like why challenger sell annuities, right? There's just that really, the market makes it really – for all of the other products that have been invented, the market makes it really, really difficult for people to find a way to get income from quality stocks, quite frankly. And maybe maybe that's what we should be doing. Maybe there's an opportunity there for us to do something else. But th- I think that's fair. The other thing I would say, by the way, on valuation is just be careful because my point of, you know, does it make them look cheap? I actually – it was a bit of a rhetorical question, a bit of a straw man because I think the, re- the verse is actually true. I think they're expensive because the market was expecting this. But once it's gone, it's gone. And so if that's already priced in, don't go chasing bank shares because of a potential buyback. Because I think that's, people will read the AFR today or tomorrow and say, yeah, I could, I could do that. I'll buy them now so I get the money. I think it's tempting. But remember, the market prices in stuff it already knows. And I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that those in the know were expecting that it'd be a massive capital return of some sort or another at some point. Uh, whether it's justified or not, as you say, mate, it's an open question. Well, maybe not even an open question, probably a closed question and not in the way the banks would like it. Um, but there was just that, just remember, as an investor, if the market already knows something, you can assume that it's normally not always because the market's inefficient. Sometimes uh, but you can assume it's probably priced in, right?
2: Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, I think you're dead right on that one. Yeah, like I mean, if the market expected it, then it's probably priced in. That's that's more likely than anything
1: else. And mate, you you made a comment to me. Uh, oh, here's another great segue. Speaking of capital raisings, um, you, you made a you made a comment to us during the week in the team chat, and I, I thought it was a really prescient comment and and it, I, I've been wanting something similar, but you put it in a really really nice way, um and, and it was a really kind of you, you really cut through the you know the, the key question. We've we've seen plenty of Australian companies raise capital. You had a little bit of a a quasi song uh, that you used to throw in our in our group chat every time another Australian company would raise capital during the the worst of COVID. Um, you know it seemed like every man and his dog was putting the hand out for some more cash, and and again. Whether it was justified, whether the price was right, whether they needed it, whether they should have had more capital—all that aside—a whole lot of companies raised a whole lot of cash, and the market was very, very happy to throw that money at these companies. Most of them raised capital because either they needed it, literally needed it, like a Webjet or a Flight Centre, or because they may have needed it at some point and didn't want to run the risk. That's you know that's kind of the that's the handout when you need a handout when you desperately need it, and they've been very, very lucky, frankly, really, really lucky that the market came to the party. Because we've seen a whole lot more bankruptcies or very run, very close run things had that capital not been available. That being said, in the last was it month? Maybe we're seeing plenty of U.S. companies who ordinarily you've you've you talk about a book really regularly called "Capitalism Without Capital." The idea that growth doesn't require a whole lot of money to invest in that growth because we're talking largely about virtual products. And again, you may want to define your terms better than I'm doing. Um, but the idea is, you know. Uh, a, a, a Google or pick your company, Amazon or whoever, I own both those shares, by the way. You may have better examples again, mate. These businesses could grow without capital. They're not manufacturers. They're not, you know, they don't need, um, you know, steel mills. These companies grow because they grow because they grow to some degree. Yet they've been putting their hand out for billions, billions with a B, um, of of new capital for investors. And the kind of the, it's not a rhetorical question, a genuine question, but with no answer is, What are companies that are in this capitalism without capital genre, what do they need the money for?
2: Yeah. So I think, I mean, I was thinking about that. So this was in the context of some of these cloud companies. So there are four, I think uh, in the last week, so I think Zoom um, and uh, DocuSign, CrowdStrike and one more, I think it's Box. Uh, Don't quote me on the last one. They all basically are raising capital. Now, All of these businesses, they actually have tremendous cash flow, free cash flow. Like, I mean, they actually generate free cash flow, um, you know, and- we say raising capital, mate,
1: just quickly. Zoom itself raised $1.75 billion, right? Like, we're not talking about, you know, a little bit of pocket change. They are raising, like, stupid, stupid, you know, kick-butt amounts of capital. Um, Sorry, just keep going. I just just want to kind of, So so, so, so Zoom is to to repaint the corporate signage.
2: Yeah. So Zoom is like the highest, I think. DocuSign was about 600 million. Uh, CrowdStrike was about 750 million. Uh, actually, one of the things that I missed initially when, when we discussed this and, and that, you know, change, some, changes sort of some of the story around this, although it doesn't change the the overall big picture, which is like if you think of a digital business like Zoom is a good example because everybody uses Zoom, right? Um, You know, like once you have made the software and you're selling the same software to hundreds of people, it's basically just, you know, a download, right? So it doesn't really cost that much. So, and and they have sales and marketing teams and things like that. But I mean, and this Mm. is not a company which has got, you know, tens of millions of dollars on the balance sheet. It actually has billions of dollars on the balance sheet already, right? right? So the the big question in my mind, why do you need this capital? And, and, mm-hmm. and, of course, and you raised the point about uh, you know, dilution to some extent. So what is interesting to me is Zoom is actually, I think, doing a dilutive capital raise because it's a straight up, I think, equity placement. The other guys, to varying extent, are doing different things. So CrowdStrike is basically um, doing an unsecured note. So, so they're basically, they're going to pay a coupon of 3% on, I don't know, 750 million dollars that they're getting. So it's not dilutive. And because
1: you know, so it's, bonds, right, it's a they're, they're corporate bond, right? It's a corporate bond. here, doing a debt raising, but rather than going to the bank, they're saying to the, the you know, the debt market, hey, can we have some money? We'll give you three percent. Is it? Yeah. I assume it's like a fixed term,
2: <clears> term. It's a fixed term. Yeah, it's a fixed yeah. term. So those things are fixed term. And I was just checking DocuSign. DocuSign has done a hybrid, which is basically, they're they're raising six hundred million at guess how much interest? Zero
1: percent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That is, but, that is, I, 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 uh, I guess. I guess if you can borrow for zero, why wouldn't you? I, I want. No, no. So the,
2: the, the, there's a caveat to that. The caveat is that oh, it's, okay. it's actually zero percent, but it's a convertible senior note, and and right, right, right. Guess what is the conversion price here? So, the the shares, I think, when this was put out, were at 262 US dollars. The conversion price is 420 dollars. It's at 60 percent up. So it's not much. Dilution. <laughs> if you think about it that way, so in my take is these businesses don't need the capital, but there is just so much slushing money around. <laughs> Somebody yep. came to them and basically said, "Hey, do you want to have some almost free money?" Mm-hmm. And they said, "Okay, sure." I'll take it. <laughs> and I guess yeah, yeah, well, I guess I'll take it because uh, y- yeah. you know, like again, like topisan is growing pretty rapidly 30 40%. I mean, I don't know. As I, as I like to, as as I said in that chat, the main problem for these companies is not that they don't have access to capital. They have capital on their balance sheets. The main limitation in my opinion is actually there aren't that many great engineers that you can hire that you can all of a sudden Change your product roadmap substantially, right? You can't. There's a limitation. Even if, if you good could, though, you now. couldn't
1: really spend that sort of money, could you? I mean, like, yeah, I, th- let's I take a don't Zoom, think for you example. can. You raised $2 billion. What what else do you spend? Even if you could recruit, I don't know how many, like, the, almost all that money is, is going to kind of cash flow positive anyway. You recruit an engineer, they make you money. <laughs> I'm not sure what you could spend that capital cash on well, and not get a return. Yeah,
2: I mean, there's that. But I don't think functionally, they, you know, you can hire that many good video codec engineers, which is going to substantially change the roadmap. For, like, I mean, there is a limitation to how much you can do. These are not capital-intensive businesses in the first place, right? They don't need to build factories. So, unless Zoom is going to now, you know, start building like you know maybe sofas uh, because they've seen yeah. the sofa sales are up. I mean, there is no need. For, so, I yeah, the, so I, I mean, I'm a little disappointed, but at least. Uh, with the exception of the Zoom just didn't look at very carefully Zoom seems to be doing a plain up equity raise and that is like you know the share price is uh, is down substantially from their all-time highs I think they're down like 40% so I mean in in Zoom's case it seems like they could have picked a better opportunity they didn't need to (laughs) all the other guys are effectively getting free money and you know and and the banker is making some money because you know the banker is always going to get a cut Mm. but that's really it and I think in my mind this is really indicative of the times we are in where there's just so much money available that, yeah. you know, people are saying, well, I'll take it.
1: Got <laughs> to say too, though, like I, I think the Zoom one is really staggering to me. Look, it's an expensive business and it's worth a lot of money, in air quotes, it's being valued highly. $2 billion of dilution, though, I said to you guys the other day, you know, debt is temporary, but dilution forever. I mean, yes, you can buy back the shares, but to some degree, if you believe in the Zoom store and you're already a shareholder when they issue $2 billion or one and one three quarters, billion US dollars of, of new shares, that's dilution you never get back. And so you better hope they've got use for that capital because if, they just, if that's just feel-good money, and don't, I don't know what it represents as a portion of the market share, but let's say it's a 10% just for the sake of the exercise. As a Zoom shareholder, my future earnings from now to perpetuity are, are permanently 10% lower than they would have been at whatever level they started with, um, effectively now forever because the company decided to raise some more capital. I mean that that's you know, I mean it's not it's not yeah that's I'm staggering having my returns but it was well, forever is a long time, right? Like yeah, you don't get that yeah. back. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And I'm just checking while you were talking, so Zoom's market cap is around one hundred and four billion if they're raising oh, okay. like one point seven or something, okay. whatever it is, okay. it's still it's, it's still like well, but it's still it's like still
0: right?
2: <laughs> Well it's it's close to two percent. I mean you know, yeah. it's getting there, right? Um, yeah. it's it's not it's, yeah, but I mean, and I think it is a little bit, uh, if, especially if you have already cash on your balance sheet, substantial amounts of cash, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it just seems a bit odd. So I don't know what these guys are, you know, maybe they see like, you know, the, de- the decade going forward is like, you know, going to be terrible. We better be prepared. I don't know what they are seeing that is making them yeah, do this. Right,
0: right. Um, yeah, Anyways, it's weird. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All
1: right, mate, let's, let's move on from weird capital raising. I guess it's you know a first class problem when you're doing well and, and raising capital, but still, these days, companies are making future decisions on a whole lot of different areas, mate. And this is, a couple of stories this week struck me for a couple of reasons. So, the first, we saw Origin Energy decide to get into the the battery storage, energy storage market. And when I say market, I mean business. They're going to literally have their own batteries, apparently. We've also seen a company that is basically fundraising and then going to set up grid-scale solar, in their words. Now, we've got to be careful of PR press releases. So, you know, that's their plan. Whether it ever gets to it is an open question. But grid-scale storage, uh, grid-scale supply, I should say, for solar on commercial and industrial buildings – Across the country in theory, starting I think with Melbourne, I I'm I'm reminded, mate, that for a long time companies said, We don't feel like we can make investments because we haven't got policy certainty. That was the big and I'm sure that was true, by the way. I'm sure if you're in charge of the company's checkbook, you're gonna say, Well, hang on, you want X million dollars, I only you know, we wanna have more certainty here. I feel a little bit like this is some sort of tipping point, and 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 we can. I don't want to get. I don't want to get political about it. Or even even. You know, I've talked about climate change before, and I'm I'm a believer. I've said on the record. I'm happy to happy to go down on that one. But I, regardless of that, this feels like a meaningful step. It's not. It's not a, not a step change entirely, but a meaningful step towards business saying we haven't got time to wait anymore. The business cases are moving forward fast enough that either we can't wait for government assurance, or by the time we do it'll be, if not too late, at least the opportunity might have been gone. It feels to me like there's been a tipping point passed for for corporate investment into these sort of energy alternatives um, and they're less alternative now than mainstream, but realistically, you know, coal was easy because you knew how much it cost to build and say, and, and sell and, co- you know, very easy P&L. It seems to me now businesses are saying we wanted certainty, we're not getting it, but we're moving ahead anyway because we feel like now the risks are worth it given the potential rewards on offer.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's a little bit like this has been going on for some times, right? So it'd be, you know, mm-hmm. corporates basically taking on responsibility and trying to be good corporate citizens because it has it has some branding impact, right? Like I mean, if the you say I'm going to be carbon neutral, that has an impact with your audience in the sense that okay, well, you know, maybe I'm I'm buying stuff from a company that's being carbon neutral or that's going to use fair labor and things mm-hmm. like that. So I think those. Um, at the same time I think there's a cost curve issue as well right I think like energy companies are now at the point where they know that um, you know investing in like a distributed power generation is no longer costly and in fact solar could be actually very very cost effective in the long run uh, and and therefore you know for from their point of view it just makes economic sense so I think we are at that point where distributed energy generation, green energy generation, is at um, at a tipping point, well past or well past the tipping point in terms of cost. And, and that's really, you know, the economics is really the primary driver here. It's, you know, and, and then of course you can spin it with some uh, uh, feel good green, then, you know, uh, you appeal to both, right? You're appealing to your shareholders because it's economic, it makes economic sense. And you're appealing to tree hugging people because it makes sense. And, you know, again, I, I believe in climate change, but I think for most of these things, while government incentives can help to some extent, economic mm-hmm. incentives are far, Bigger, <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> and right. because,
1: of, and that's the thing, right? They've gone to, they've gone from, we need government certainty because these things are lion ball. I think exactly to your point. To we actually don't need the government to decide anymore because the basic economics do it for us. That that yeah, that exactly. feels like the big it's change. Like a,
2: that is exactly the big change. So I think that that is is making sense. And then you know you mentioned you know people talking about battery. Well, because everybody's now realizing we're going to have intermittent energy supply. That means you need battery. Well, that's a big business. Now, given the state of the grid, not just here but everywhere else, like I mean, the grid is basically very dated. Um, you know, it, it, it's most most places the electric grid is like fifty years plus old, um, and and you've got these peaker plants that are all you know in many places gas or. Uh, coal-based that you want you know you want to extend their life you don't want to destroy them you want to extend their life uh, while using other other sources to substitute for the peaker plants so I, I think all of this is just you know the economic reality coming what's going to be interesting I think is that you know the cost curve declines happen at a rapid rate for period of time and then the sort of decline starts moderating right so i wonder how much um, extrapolation is going on in terms of the cost curve right so the the cost curve decline has been pretty astounding over the last 10 years it's not going to be as astounding over the next 10 years uh it would be my guess if i had to make a guess Um, so uh, i'd be curious about what sort of modeling these people are doing when they're betting into this so anyways i think it's interesting overall
1: so, so let, me, let me ask you the question of that notice, mate, because, I mean, it's interesting from a, from a policy perspective, interesting from a social perspective, political, all sorts of stuff going on there. We're, we're an investing podcast. When it comes to the investing elements of this, I mean, if you're, excuse me, if you're you know, appropriately minded, it, it seems to me like, There is no new coal generation without subsidy at this point from the sound of it based on where companies are choosing with their dollars. Yes, there's some branding benefit. Yes, there's some virtual signaling, let's be honest. Um, They want to be seen to be able to put a a, a thing on it. I'm not entirely sure, by the way, that a, a tiny investment in one battery by one energy company uh, you know, completely destroys the rest of their business, which is old school energy generation. So let's be, let's be, there might be a bit of, I always say greenwashing because I don't want to get taken to court, but there might be a bit of, you know, there's some benefit in announcing these things, which isn't purely economic. That being said, it seems like this is one way traffic. It probably has for a long time, but it seems like we're hitting, I said, that tipping point. What, if any, investing related outcomes come from this? Is it, uh, do, do we see cheaper energy down the track, which means manufacturing becomes cheaper? Do we see disruption of existing industries in mining or energy energy generation? Is there anything at all in this, or is it just simply interesting and and it doesn't matter that much? If you were to kind of look at this and say, what next? Um, do, do you see any investing takeaways from from the seemingly, uh, you know, as a clear tipping point that we feel like we've passed?
2: Uh, so like I mean, from an investing point of view, I think like the, you know, the obvious ones are like things like coal, for example. Sh- that that should see a declining cost curve because of declining uh, demand, right? So I mean, that's one obvious one. The what is not clear to me is the 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 gen like so there are various components of. Of distributed generation, for example, is it solar? Is it wind? Is it mm. you know, you know, different turbine technology or whatever else? It is hard to know which which one is going to win where and how and so on and so forth. So again, you know, most of these things tend to be large uh, engineering conglomerates, right? And typically for them, these things tend to be a small component of the overall business, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Again, it's, it's hard to figure out how, so even if that industry or sector sees a rapid investments over a long period of time, it's very hard to know how you could play uh, that area. I mean, one thing that I think is going to happen, but it's hard to tell how it's going to shape out, is um, I think energy services, but distributed energy services is gonna be a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where where you would be able to sell power not just to the grid but to other participants over time. Again, how that's gonna shake out and how which players are gonna win is gonna be hard to know. But I, I think like the ways way to think about this is there's gonna be more software in the grid. So who are the people who provide software to the grid is one way to think about playing yeah, this area. Right um who are the key providers of important hardware um is you know the other uh, other thing to think about the if you think about energy markets and energy market participation then again there is you know um there are arbitrage opportunities that could be leveraged and again how long they are going to be there is, is a is a is a good question So, I mean, there's some ways to think about this, but again, you know, it's like any other industry in in flux that's changing, it's hard to know. Like, you know, do you want to go for industrial IoT? Do you want to go for these players that are, you know, helping with monitoring uh, installations, for example, then lots of different things and, and the value might accrete uh, more upstream, right? I mean, if somebody has a bunch of these plants located uh, across the country, then you want a way to monitor it, and you know, uh, and maybe there's a you know there's a, a, cat, a catapult-like hardware, software subscription service that that you need to actually you know mm-hmm. monitor these things. So, so there's a lot of different ways in which you you can think about. It, but again, I don't think there's any clear uh, pathway that's immediately visible to me.
1: Does strike me too, mate. And again, this gets spectrum policy rather than investing, but it just strikes me that for manufacturers who are energy intensive, if we can if we can find a way as a country and machines have been turned off and on, and you know steel mills take weeks to cool down and stuff, so I'm not talking about those particularly, but you know there are plants that simply can't shut off and, and start up at, at will. But man, the amount of effectively free, you know, marginal cost free, energy we can produce during the middle of the day. For something like, a, and I, again, I don't know anything about the industry. So, if you're working aluminium, don't email me. I don't want to hear about it. Um, but you know, aluminium they reckon is effectively you know, solid energy. They call it you know solid electricity. The, the amount of electricity required to make aluminium is enormous. But you also figure, hey, if you could if you could just make it when, he, when energy was effectively free, the, the cost of that, you know, the, the marginal cost of production, the excess energy, there is so much that in theory could be done. Um, at a manufacturing level, which really could become—we're never going to—we're never going to compete on on labor cost. But man, if we could—if we could do some of this you know, energy-intensive manufacturing at effectively, you know, close enough to zero marginal cost, there's a there's a bloody big potential opportunity there, surely.
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, again, I, I think distributed generation is a big thing, and distributed generation harvesting the distrib- distributed generation, in my opinion, is going to be the biggest thing, right? How do you do that uh, over time, whether it's in yeah. for industrial scale um, yeah. aggregation and things like that? So I, I don't know. I think that that's going to be the big story to watch.
1: All right, man, Let's speak of the big stories. Let's, let's keep moving because one of the big ones, and look, I'm going to say that. Uh, we, look, you know, at the Motley Fool, we've 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 been known to to write our share of uh, attractive headlines. Can I say I won't call them clickbait? I'll say attractive headlines. Um, that being said, during the week we saw we saw articles that afterpay was going to be the end of credit cards. And I, look, I am always a little bit, you know, the end of this, the end of that. Um, I, I got to say there's a hundred times as many stories written on those things that actually happen, right? Because it's easy to predict the end of something, much, much harder to foresee it. At some point, someone wrote, I'm sure, digital cameras, the end of Kodak or something similar. So they occasionally do come true. Um, but I'm also mindful that BNPL, By now Paylor has been so phenomenally successful over the last only couple of years, That you could also imagine a scenario where credit card volumes are meaningfully hurt by buy now pay later, and not just the the short term after pay versions, but the long term, I guess, zip versions. There's probably others, mate. Where you know, if I can buy something interest free over three years, if I'm buying the aforementioned sofas we've talked about a few times, um, I, I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, surely that. You know, you kind of think, well, what do I need the credit card for? If I if I pay for my grocery on credit card, I can probably use Afterpay. If I buy my clothes at you know whatever shop, I can probably use Afterpay. If I start to think about those bigger credit card balance purchases, as I said, sofas, TVs. I saw a lady at Office Works yesterday buying a new computer using Afterpay. Um, you move that to something like Zip. I, I mean, I I don't think it's into credit cards, but it, it it's not beyond the realms of possibility, is it?
2: Yeah, I think there's some truth to it, although, like you know death of something is, as you said, you know, is is exaggerated. But the other thing is that, you know, death happens slowly, right? So Mm -hmm. in in at least in the industry. So I guess the interesting investing question for me is that what does it mean? Right? I mean, it it, it actually means this is bad news for banks, right? Because banks make a lot of money via fees and so on from credit cards. Yes, they do. It doesn't. It, it actually doesn't mean much for Visa and Mastercard because you know uh, wh- whether the money is flowing through the bank of post terminal or via um, you know uh, Afterpay or Zip, they're still going to make their money. So for for them, they're actually fine because they you know so they're the digital overlords uh, overlords in terms of um, uh, money flowing through. This just is a disruption for the banking industry and in how the funds flow you like, don't think at some point, though, I,
1: credit card, tr- the transactions themselves go through an afterpaid-like network or the bank's own proprietary FPOS network rather than the credit card networks? I mean, I could, I'm not predicting this, but I could see a future where Visa and MasterCard MX get cut out of that transaction flow.
2: Well, it's it's harder, right? I mean, mm. who's going to build that network? You know, that current network is still owned by those guys, right? Somebody has to build that network for payments. Um, unless, like, you know, it, it became. You know, you, you have a you have a buyer and a seller. So you have a merchant. You have to still connect those things, and that's what um, you know these uh, these credit card networks do, right? Mm-hmm. So they connect basically the merchants with the with the buyers and and customers and all the accounts and things like that. So I, I don't know. I think they're in a much stronger position compared to the banks. Is that's like yeah, my view? Unless you happen to be a provider which has got both the customers and the merchants at the same time and you run a network, right? Mm. So something like PayPal, for example, is a much better position, mm. um, you know, to s- s- sort of make sure that the movement of funds doesn't happen via uh, the normal channels, but happens via their own payment network. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it's
1: I don't hard, know. Right? Like, I, I think that yeah. the credit card the credit card profits go away potentially, but unless and until you don't settle an afterpay transaction via some other network you still need a bank account for the foreseeable future right like they've still they've still captured us the, the bank the bank the, the retailer's got a bank account I've got a bank account I pay by afterpay or visa or something else i mean you lose the credit card profit center but the rest of it kind of remains you know i, I mean eventually maybe digital wallets a uh, uh, google and apple or paypal or something else maybe replaces the bank overall but but the, the banks are so central to the store and transfer of our, of our money. I, I get paid in a bank account. I settle my credit card bill out of a bank account. Um, that to me feels like the, the last man standing is someone who provides that safe place to leave whatever balance I have at the end of a month.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not predicting the, the banks. I, I think banks have been around for thousands of years.
1: <laughs> That's right, and, okay. and, and they're going
2: to be around in for yeah. another maybe thousands. Of years. It almost seems like a yeah, fair bet. Yeah, it's just yeah. the shift of how they make money, right? Right now, they don't make money. You know, many cases they will say, "Well, you know, if you deposit money once or twice a month, I'm not going to charge you any account fees," right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Eventually, they might basically say, "Well," but they do charge like account fees if you have a business account, right? They'll take anywhere from ten dollars to twelve dollars to maybe even fifteen dollars from you. So, I mean, maybe they they have to come back and say, "Well, we're going to take money for." Maintaining this ledger for you and being the facility. At the same time, it's interesting that you know if you you can transact via Afterpay, but Afterpay wants a credit card or a debit card, right? <laughs> Afterpay wants the surety that can get the money from right, somewhere well, that's else. That's the
1: other thing. They right? need they need that <clears throat> kind of party opportunity, right? Yeah. So
2: so that's the. I mean, I'm not saying it's you know I, I'm I'm not the one predicting end of the banks. I think the banks are here. It's just the profit centers are, are shifting around. Um, right the other thing in my mind is like you know the funny thing with buy now pay later is if i have afterpay why wouldn't i have zip and if i have those why wouldn't i have a credit card right so i could have three credit cards and then i could have like three buy now pay later things it's just how now people have decided they're going to spend their money right and it's you know, it's the same thing as saying, well, you know, how much loan should I have for a property? I mean, you know, well, you can have however much loan the bank is going to allow you to have. Right, right. right and, exactly, and that's yeah. a decision yeah. that you're making. Um, Rack it up. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's that sort of thing, right? I mean, I have an Afterpay account that I use. I don't use it. I'm not that frequently a frequent mm-hmm. user. No, but my Afterpay account is linked to Apple Pay and, you know, like they take the money from Apple Pay. Well, if it's available, I use it. You know? it's a, like, you know, it seems to me, it's like a win-win. I pay later and I yep, still get yep. my credit card points and I still get to use Apple Pay. So, uh, okay,
1: Everyone's why not? Who's losing if you're what? winning so many times? So much winning. Uh, well, somebody
2: is losing here. Right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, so, so,
2: in, in my mind, it, it almost seems to be that the, the loser seems to be the retailer who has to discount. That's,
1: uh, uh, yep, I absolutely or,
2: agree. Or, or, or the other thing could be it's actually the consumer who's the loser because yeah, yeah. I mean effectively what would happen is that you you know nobody can subsidize a jeans by that much so you just get you know you're previously yeah. used to buying jeans at 30% discount now you're just buying a 20% discount because you can mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, so I'm it's, it's, pretty you know, sure I'm pretty sure it's the retailer who's paying for this one mate. I've got to say the, the, the fees are charged by the buying our pay later mobs to the retailer the retailer feels like they have no choice I feel like they're the ones who are who are paying for all this convenience.
2: Yeah, but it could also be that the retailers are now giving you less discounts, right? Every, you know, every you know, if you go past a retailer, like you know, my wife would never buy anything unless she says she says the word discount, right? <laughs> Fair. Fair. Uh, so, like, I mean, uh, you know, you just need to reduce the discount rate that you had, you know, thirty percent, thirty percent. So, it, uh, you know. I think it's the same hundred dollars being split in multiple different ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, well, and, that, and that's life, right? That's disintermediation and, and kind of re-aggregation is exactly what happens in every industry over long periods of time. The the whole idea of the supermarket bringing everything together, and then Aldi comes out and says we're just going to do this small amount of stuff, and then the you know it, that, that idea of kind of you know collapsing and, and expanding is. Is what's really happened through commerce for a very, very long time. You change the offer, you you know, you give someone something different, and, and see where the money goes. Absolutely, mate. Let's finish off with a couple of uh, a couple of uh, piece of mail. We got a very, very full mailbag. So let's do a couple of those. Uh, first one came from Gareth, mate, and I um I, I'm reading this out largely. Well, firstly because he's nice, secondly because he told me I was right, and thirdly because he had a good question. So let's go in that order. He says, "Hi Scott and Doc, love the pod. I have another question, but pl- but first, as a doctor, I can confirm." that surgeons prefer Mr. or Mrs. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, mate, that uh, uh, doctors like to be called doctor, but surgeons like to be called Mr. for reasons that are beyond my comprehension. So, Gareth, thank you for confirming that one. Uh, I'm basically mentioning it because I was right, so I was happy with that. He then, though, says, but to my question, and this is BNPL, mate, which is why I thought I'd ask it now. He says, the buy now, pay later scene seems to me to provide credit by another name. I've certainly been on the bandwagon on that one. I note that Zip... Have provisioned for increasing bad and doubtful debts. If classic credit card providers have needed to charge 20% per annum to ensure profits after bad debts, how can these providers expect to profit with such a small clip of the ticket? Now we talk about the fact they charge retailers. We about is it five-ish percent, mate? Am I right in getting that roughly mm-hmm. right for retailers? Mm-hmm. How is it that the credit card companies seem to need to pay to charge 20%? But the buy-now-pay-later guys can get away with a, with a quarter of that and still make money. The, the credit card companies' profits can't be that large. Even if they were, that would mean that the buy-now-pay-later guys would have to be operating at break-even to, to compete. How can they manage the bad debts so well when the credit card companies have to charge such high rates to offset the, the, the I was going to say few, the many of us who don't pay our cards off? And for whom those high rates are offsetting those margins?
2: Can I answer that by saying that because many people pay their cards off, that's why the credit card companies charge twenty percent. So that they can make twenty percent <laughs> of those people, of the small number of people who are not paying, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the other answer would be that they don't actually need to. This is just, the twenty percent just gives them an obscene amount of profit because they can, and <laughs> and uh, the buy now pay later is just another model, is a different model uh, of, uh, mm. of the charging. So I, I mean. Look, I mean, if you, if you, if the, the car loan oh, company... Sustainable, mate.
1: Can, can they, can they sustain those margins if the banks are charging more? Um,
2: like what do you mean? Like
1: the, the tra- like, you know, code Can I have to pay, f- make money only charging 5% of transaction value? I mean, it is a really tiny margin as the, as the maximum you ever make on that. Can they survive? Can they thrive? Can they make money for investors with such a low clip of the ticket?
2: Well, they can, right? I mean, it's 5%, but I mean, 5% of a large, um, large amount of transactions in a year, right? is pretty substantial, right? So, I mean, they're rotating money effectively, right? So they, you know, it's, if they're giving me $200 every, say, you know, four weeks, then, you know, uh, I I could effectively be spending 200 times. Yeah, uh, times you know, uh, you know, so what is it? Fifty-two divided by four, so some something like you know, somewhere around thirteen times I could actually rotate through them, and then you know they could get, you know, two hundred times thirteen. Uh, so right. that's like you know, twenty-six hundred, twenty-six hundred. You get five percent of that, and you, you know, you just it's just a total transaction volume game. So they're playing a volume game, but if the vo- if you increase the volume enough, and you control for bad debt, well, you can make money. I mean, five percent. I mean, basically, you're being five percent for. Mm. For sitting in the middle, right, and it's not costing them five percent to borrow that money, mm, right? Mm. So you can, it's so that they, you know it's, and you know that's if you think about it, a scalable business. They're basically running some software uh, to you know see that the buyers and the sellers get you, you know are matched properly and they get paid, mm. um, and that you know they make sure that if you're not paying, then your account gets blocked. Right. So it's a pretty scalable business. So. I mean, the, you know, at scale, yes, you can make money as long as you control for bad debt. And um, again, as long as you, you don't die in an economic downturn, mm, yeah. I mean, I think those two things, as long as you can ensure that, I think you can make money. Mm. And, and I think, that, you know, the credit card model is different because, you know, again, credit card is not counting on everyone not paying, right? It, it basically is saying <laughs> that be, because they've done the credit checks, they assume that, a majority of people are probably paying and uh, you know and if you call your credit card company and you have got debt on it you know you say you negotiate they can even give you like you know they there are credit card companies you say oh come to us if you've got an outstanding balance i'm going to give you like six months eight months 12 months interest free i mean how are they doing that right i mean um, so it's you know 20 percent sounds large but I think there's a reason behind it and, and I think it works here. You're charging 20% for a small number of people or you're 5% from everyone, yeah. right? So.
1: It's, um, it's a good answer, mate. I'll add a couple of things very quickly and then we'll move on. The first is that I think the banks are making obscene profit margin on credit cards. So the first thing to note is that there is, you know, Jeff Bezos said, your margin is my opportunity. I think Afterpay kind of said the same thing to the banks. There's something in that, I think, worth talking about. The other thing people don't remember, and you kind of alluded to that, Doc, and, and maybe I'm just repeating you, but I'll try to do it in a, a different way, is we compare a 5% clip of the ticket with a 20% interest rate on credit cards. But the difference is those two little Latin words after the 20%, which is per annum. Now, if you're, if, if, if afterpay is lending you a hundred bucks to buy something, you're going to pay the hundred bucks back in what is it, mate? Three fortnights these days? Two fortnights? I can't remember the numbers. Something like that, yeah. So okay, let, let's let's call it three fortnights. Let's be generous. Let's call it six weeks. Um, you'll borrow, you're borrowing, you the retailer's paying five percent, but afterpay is getting its money back for, on that effective five percent in six weeks. Which means, as you kind of alluded to, it can do that what eight eight and a half times a year. Now, it doesn't, you can't necessarily just multiply the, the, the margin out, but all by the same token, it's not that different. So you can put that money to work and make 5% every six weeks rather than 5% per annum. And that makes a huge difference. If you said to your bank, hey, can I have I put my 100 bucks in the bank? Can I have 5% every six weeks, please? They say, no, no in the world I'm doing that. That's, the, that's an equivalent interest rate of 40% per annum. I'm not, I'm not giving you that. And yet that's kind of to some degree what Afterpay is doing. I think comparing the per annum charge with the per transaction charged after pay, and different people are paying it, the consumer's not paying it, so I'm not saying it's hurting me as a consumer by that amount, but when you rotate, roll over that money often enough, that's a really meaningful difference. I'd rather have a business that made 5% every six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks than making 20% per annum. I think it's worth just comparing those numbers as well. Anything else on that, mate? No, I think that's correct. Last one from Craig. Uh, And this one relates to our five-stock sampler, mate. And I'm I'm asking this because Craig asked it, but also, mate, you got the world's unluckiest break uh, last Friday, unfortunately. Craig says, hi, Scott and Doc. I'm always a keen listener when you two wise gentlemen do a five-stock sampler. Now, if you haven't heard that one, go back to our January 8th podcast where Doc and I mentioned five stocks each. I snuck a sixth bonus one in there, but uh, five stocks each for our five stocks for five years for our 2021 edition. Uh, Craig says, one stock Doc selected was Lemonade, a disruptor of the insurance industry. He says, I think the market must have sensed that Doc might select this stock as it jumped 26% on the day you recorded the podcast, but it was a day before the podcast aired. Question for the podcast's overflowing full mailbag, is Doc off to a great start or Scott, are you having a little giggle at this turn of events? Love the podcast full on. And Doc, the bad news for you is, unfortunately, you've got to cop that 26% jump in the share price of Lemonade, which is not going to help you. Now, I don't think it'll hurt you necessarily. I'm sure the stock will still do really, really well. But man, you got an unlucky break. But we recorded it, what, on a Wednesday, I think. Um, the Thursday, it must have been that the stock went up. And the Friday, we, this podcast went to air. We use that Friday date as the, as the start date, unfortunately, because that's the date our listeners can have acted on that advice. So we have to we have to do that at the moment. We always put our listeners first, or our members, our viewers, our readers. Mate, that's gotta hurt, doesn't
2: it? Oh, I'm still hoping I'll, I'll come out ahead, but
1: we'll see. You can't you can't um, be happy. Put it that way.
2: Um. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not happy. I'm not. I'm not, <laughs> not uh, overly. Look. Like, I mean, this is going to be a volatile. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be a very volatile company. So I, I realize that. Um. Yeah. About. You know. That's okay. That's life. That's
1: Let fine. me ask you the question: If if, you, if the share price had been twenty five percent higher on the day you recommended it, would you still have made it one of your five stocks?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. There I, you go. Like I, I I think this this. So I mean I, I picked this. I think this this is one of the stocks. You know, maybe a bit of a flyer stock. That says this could mm. legitimately be a ten bagger uh, from wherever it is today, right. and right. it wouldn't surprise me at all that it actually ten bagged from there. It could twenty bag even maybe, uh, and it'll still not surprise me. So, yeah, I, you know, uh, fully aware of that. Of course, I would like a lower start, if possible, like everyone else. <laughs> this is actually a company I've been <laughs> intending to buy. But, you know, for various reasons, we had this recommended. Also, we have recommended this in at least one of our services, Shooting Stars. Um, yeah. and, and and because we were discussing it for that one. And then we, I mentioned it here, and then we talked about it somewhere else. So. I actually haven't been able to buy it um (laughs) it's been on it's been sitting on my watch list for a long time uh and and again now that we have talked about it uh you know
0: it's going to be
2: off off, off limits for some more time maybe it'll go up another 26 percent in the meantime so it's it's okay like i mean on on any of these highly volatile things i do what i do is i keep it you know and this is just a tip i i maintain like a watch list of my most desired uh, stocks to add and you know there'll be a day when it's probably going to drop 26% maybe 20% or whatever and maybe I'll be lucky on that day to buy uh, if not I'll just buy at some point anyways just because yeah. again we, like uh, we, we're picking you know we, we do the tallying at the end of the year but I mean you know, most of these things I think are 3 to 5 maybe 5 plus year players so I, I, I still feel that this is going to be a good one for five years but you can you know again nothing there's no guarantee and I would never say that you should have a five-stop portfolio and I would say that you should have even a 10 you know least I'd like to say 20, 25, 30 mm-hmm. is probably where I start feeling comfortable uh, enough diversification and that allows you to sort of focus on um on letting some sort of the, the winners keep running, right? Because then that way you land up still having a concentration por- concentrated portfolio, but you're not heavily dependent on like that one position which is like 10% of your portfolio or 5% of your portfolio, which would be the case if you like had um you know 10 10 companies in your portfolio, right? If you had 10 then and you equally divided that each each is actually a pretty substantial position. If you have 20, each is still a pretty substantial position, but if you have 30 now, you know, well, and you can find 30 good companies. Like, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? So, so anyways, that's I still like it.
1: I love it, man. I think it's a really important one. I want to go back very quickly to the point you made at the very beginning, which is I asked you the question, would you still buy it 26-min high? said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it's important because we have plenty of Correspondents who obsess over price movements of you know half a percent, one percent, two percent. You know the, the shares are a dollar five. Should I wait till I get back to a dollar? Um, uh, you know, and, and you're saying, hey, I, yeah, up twenty five percent. Who cares? I'll still buy it. Now, not every company you shouldn't buy Telstra after a twenty five percent you know sudden jump in the share price unless there's something really great going on. Um, I own shares by the way of Telstra, um, but you know it, it's one of those things where as long as you understand the style of investing you're following. And as you say, mate, these are this is one of those you know flyer opportunities, high risk, high potential return. Where you know whether you twenty six percent, is not going to matter to the return, right? Almost certainly, you know, in terms of it's either be a ten bag or it's not. If it is paying a bit more, it's not great, but you'd, you'd rather buy it than not. And if it doesn't work, then probably doesn't matter whether you buy it twenty percent higher or not. You're still going to you're going to you know lose or, or not make almost as much. Um, so is that that sense that you know if you if you're buying a slow grower where valuation really matters, be really careful on the price. If you're buying a company, and particularly a portfolio of companies that have those sort of characteristics, yeah, you want to buy something that's approximately in the right value range. But when you're prepared to pay a dollar or a dollar twenty five and and not blink. Um now that's not lemonade's actual share price, but you get the idea. Because the long term is maybe it's a ten dollar stock. That's the biggest that's the bigger calculation to get right than whether it's a dollar or dollar ten or dollar fifteen, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, pennywise, pound foolish could be the problem. So you have to think about the upside potential as well.
1: And of course, now the if you Oh sorry mate. Uh, if you, do feel want to get some more of Doc's great ideas, largely ASX-related, occasionally we throw in some US ideas, you want to join he and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Now, Extreme Opportunities is a service that Doc runs that is currently soundly beating the market and, more importantly, I think will continue to do so. We can make no promises, as I always say, and past performance is no guarantee, but also it's not the most unlikely place to find outperformance, right? If they've done something right in the past very decent chance they might be doing something right well into the future. If that sounds like it's of interest to you, our podcast listeners can go to fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast and get a special deal to join Doc and Kevin for a remarkably good price. Let me just say that, Um, like stupidly good price. Cheaper than Doc would sell it for, cheaper than I would sell it for, but luckily for you... The doctor or I set the price. So, if you want a great price on a great investment service with at least a dozen new ASX recommendations every single year, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast to get the best of what those two gentlemen have to offer. Mate, we're done. We have finished our hour together. So, before we go, if you haven't yet, please do. We had a massive spike in memberships. Actually, Matt, I should have said this at the top. We were the ninth most popular podcast in Australia on Apple iTunes last week. How good's that? Top 10.
2: That's fantastic. Why not the number one? Well,
1: I would ask our listeners the same thing, Doc. If they'd shared more broadly, if they told their friends like we ask them to every single week, we might be number one. We're not though because they, well, I'm not going to blame them, but I am going to say, well, have a good look at yourself. Have a look at yourself in the mirror and say, did, did I really do the right thing by my friends and family? Have I really helped them earn the financial independence they deserve? And if you haven't done that, shouldn't you fix that up? Anyway, uh, we, we, so I wanted to say other than that, thank you to our listeners who do listen regularly, who have subscribed, who have joined us on this Foolish Journey, we do our best to bring you some fun, some education, some insights, some stock tips, uh, some sort of breakdown of what's happening in markets and the economy. And if you have valued that, then thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hanging around. And if you haven't yet subscribed, this is maybe your first time listening. Do go and check out some past episodes, but also make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player, whether that's iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or the cross-platform app like podcast one we're part of the podcast one family please do go and subscribe so they get downloaded automatically to your feed you don't want to miss an episode like well i'll give let the cat out of the bag doc a special mailbag episode this sunday surprise surprise and if you do like it please do give us a rating uh those ratings do matter we do have a look at them uh they're, they're they're jolting readings sometimes doc i have to say they're not always kind mostly they are. Uh, we're doing pretty well in the ratings. We'd love some stars. We'd love some reviews if you wouldn't mind if you're enjoying it and you'll help other people find it as well. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full Fool on. Full on.